Hey, this is Paul. If you like our show and want to continue to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash southpawpod and you can pledge to be a Patreon for $5 a month, which is less than the price of an average lunch. You can continue to support us and get exclusive content and access to our Discord channel and full extended summaries of the show. Please, I don't like begging, but please, please. Help, help us out. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is South Paul. So today on the podcast, we have MMA fighter Savannah M and her trainer, Justin Hamilton. Nice to see you guys. Very nice to see you. Hello. So why we wanted to invite you guys on the show is this is kind of a uh, Mike Tyson's punch out style, like origin story of, you know, Little Mac and Doc Lewis. But normally you kind of see a up and coming fighter with already like a very established trainer or maybe it's an already an established fighter with an established trainer. But I thought this was a unique opportunity where you have two people on the come up. And I wanted to kind of do a snapshot profile and kind of see where you're at, what the thought process is, how this all works. And hopefully maybe over time, we could do it a couple more times and just kind of see the evolution. Like, what is that Facebook thing, the 10-year challenge or whatever? <laughs> kind of do something like that, but maybe not 10 years, but like, you know, whatever, 10 months or something. So let me start with you, Savannah. What's your origin story? How did you go from being born to MMA? That's a lot. Of yeah. Like a superhero? Yeah. Right? Like that is what MMA is kind of like. You get to see Iron Man versus Spider-Man. Yeah. I come from Krypton and yeah. Um, <clears throat> I started I started boxing. Um, actually, uh, yeah, I started boxing around 2012. Um, like I was just telling Paul earlier, I, I, I actually visited my old gym in Long Beach, DG Boxing this morning. And uh, I was doing that for a couple of years. I, I liked it. And then a um, uh, couple of years into that, I, I, I started incorporating jujitsu at Cal State Long Beach. And then two couple of years into that, I think around this time, women's MMA was kind of growing with, you know, Ronda Rousey, like being a, a big superstar around that time. And then um, uh, a, a friend of ours, uh, a friend of uh, Danny's was was fighting in MMA at the time and he kind of helped me to talk to the right people to kind of help me get my own fight so like during this time I was kind of cross training in in different gyms like adding Muay Thai and kickboxing and stuff and uh, wrestling and um yeah that's kind of how it started and when you say Danny you mean Daniele Bellelli yes the Italian guy so he's a well-known martial artist podcaster and he kind of was the segue into professional mixed yeah, martial arts yeah yeah he's he's kind of the start of i mean he's the one that introduced me to dg to dg at long beach so oh, okay. he was the one that got me into all of it actually so uh, i mean i think i've always kind of had it in me it's like since i was a kid i've always watched like kung fu movies and um was always playing like fighting games with my brothers and uncles and we're always like messing with each other like uh that's just kind of how I've always been. So it just kind of seemed perfect. 
you started boxing and then it wasn't very long after that that you started fighting professionally yeah pretty much it's just all kind of momentum and you enjoyed it from the beginning yep but when you first got into boxing was it with an intent that you might do this professionally or just liked it no i just liked i never imagined i would become a professional athlete ever in my life so it's it's interesting how things played out what did you imagine then that might happen for you um, I was always very artistic, but um, I don't think my mom really knew like what I could do with art. So it was always, you know, um, they were always encouraging stuff like doctor or so. Yeah, I think I always told my parents just to make them happy, like, oh, I'm going to be a uh, virologist or a marine biologist or just like random stuff that sounded like impressive. So you're like George Costanza. I don't know. No. <laughs> Wait, Justin, is there an age difference between you two? Um, a few years, not not too terribly. But uh, what what are you? Twenty six. Twenty six. And I just turned thirty one. Okay, oh, wow. so he's making a Seinfeld reference for you. <laughs> oh, I haven't. Yeah, that could be the last one for the. Day. You're like, yeah, this is like the third or fourth guest who's the same age as Paul. I think you're the third guest because I'm also thirty one. Oh, okay, yeah. So Paul knows all the Seinfeld references. Is anyone here a marine biologist? There we go. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm among friends then. Okay. Yeah, but I think that millennial period is where like Seinfeld was getting a lot of rotation on reruns. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, I never saw the Seinfeld when it was on its prime at NBC, but I always saw all the reruns constantly. And that's how I got familiar. So Savannah, then are you still pursuing art? Um, yeah. I, um I mean, I right out of high school, I went to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising for their digital media program. And uh, uh, yeah, I just learned a bunch of things. And, and now I'm kind of just doing my own, um, you know, picking up my own art gigs on the side, uh, digital media related, or um, I even kind of learned, I learned illustration myself, like uh, the, di- the digital format. So that's what I'm doing on the side when I'm not training. Did you do amateur MMA first or did you just go straight to... Uh, I went straight to pro. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Um, so your record is your pro record. That's it. Yeah. No amateur. Yeah, yeah. I mean, before I was doing like bo- smoker matches and, and boxing. And then I was like competing in a bunch of jujitsu tournaments. And then started kind of going to MMA classes and trying to put things together. And then jumped right into it. And then Justin, you're her head MMA coach. Yes. But you linked up with her later on. Yes. Yeah, it was actually... Uh, Less than a year ago now, right? Mm-hmm. Was it a reason you went straight to pro? Because out of all the states, California does have a pretty robust and well-maintained amateur system. And they have certain rule sets so you can get experience. Was there a reason you went straight to pro? We're kind of discussing it. You know, there's um, different opinions. Like people say it's good to get experience uh, building, you know, just doing good in amateur and, and maybe not risk, um, you know, jumping into pro right away. But um. Uh, I think the reason we went right into it was because um, I was able to start in a lower level organization mm. and uh, gladiator challenge. Yeah, exactly. So it, and they fight out of reservations, right? Yeah. I think then the laws are also different, right? Because I think if you don't fight in reservations, you might mm. have to fight uh, amateur first to get licensed. And then Justin, what's your origin story? How did you go from I don't even know. You're not native Angelino, right? You're from from Chicago, actually. And then, so how did you go from growing up in Chicago to out here training Savannah in MMA? Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot there, as you could probably imagine. 
Um, I started training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai when I was about 17 years old. So this would have been back in like, I think maybe 2005 or so. Um, and I had an amateur MMA fight when I was 20 years old. Um, this was out in Akron, Ohio. Before that, no other like wrestling training or nothing. You went straight from nothing to 17. You started training BJJ Muay Thai or you had some. Yeah, no one in my family ever was into martial arts. No one I knew was really into martial arts. And um, if anything, just being being a, a big pro wrestling fan as a kid is really my, my only uh, entree into martial arts. Um, I don't know, something just about mm, combat or something just, just just always really spoke to me. And so um, at some point I got a hold of, I think it was UFC Hits Volumes 1 and 2, which had, you know, just a kind of bunch of the more famous fights from, you know, the earlier days. And um, I, I guess I should back up and say I did train Jeet Kune Do for a very short time years prior. And right before I stopped training Jeet Kune Do, we started doing a little bit of grappling. We were introduced to this, this radical concept called the guard. And uh, so then I see these UFC hits and, uh, and, you know, they hit the ground and I'm, and I'm hearing, okay, he's got him in his closed guard. He's got him in guard. And I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's the stuff we were doing. You know, and here I was, I had lost interest at that point. I'm like, you know, I, it was right in front of me and I, and I didn't really recognize it. And so, um, you know, I was, I was really into watching boxing at this time too. You know, Mike Tyson was definitely one of my early heroes. Um, and so you know, not long after seeing these, these MMA fights, uh, I just, you know, looked into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu academies in, in my area and I, I happened to find one and I just walked in there and basically just signed up. And, uh, through there, I met my, my first Muay Thai coach as well. And then, you know, little by little, I just trained more, started competing in Jiu-Jitsu, started teaching really, really early on. Um, I was still technically a white belt and I was already sort of teaching classes. You know, the, the scene looked much different back then. You know, this is, you know, mid 2000s, especially in the Midwest. There's a lot of, you know, wrestling and such, but other, you know, in terms of mixed martial arts and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it, it was pretty limited. And um, so this was also, I was, you know, I just started, you know, now we're 18, 19, just started college. And um, when I was 20, I took an MMA fight. And I was really at sort of a pivotal uh, time in my life where I was either going to focus on, on being a fighter and I was going to pursue that professionally, or I was going to pursue uh, sociology, which I, you know, recently decided to be a, a sociology major and, um, and, you know, pursue my PhD in sociology. And so I really had this choice of pursuing fighting or pursuing academia. Um, and then I ultimately chose to pursue academia. And so I continued to certainly train throughout this process and compete in jiu-jitsu and, you know, had won some smaller titles in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and submission grappling, and then um, completed my, my undergraduate degree, my master's degree, and then applied to, I specifically uh, applied to PhD programs only in New York or California, because um, if I was going to continue my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training, um, it was it was going to be through a, a Team Henzo Gracie Academy, and so um, I got into a school at uh, UCR, at University of California Riverside, and uh, that sort of you know paid for me to get out here and find myself in California, and then um, started working on my dissertation for sociology on women's mixed martial arts fighters. And so I needed to interview a bunch of professional women's mixed martial arts fighters. And so I went on Tapology's website and basically started contacting everyone in my area. And I 
came across this this one particular fighter by the name of uh it was it was confusing she had like three names on there It was like savannah nauri m and i i never heard of her but i just uh i found her instagram i think it was and Mm -hmm. sent uh, a message saying you know i'd really like to interview you for my dissertation you know could you make some time uh and she was you know nice enough and and perhaps naive naive enough to agree and uh, (laughs) that's like why you guys came here right right (laughs) and so um you know we we did a an interview it was about an hour and a half i think savannah spoke three or four words during (laughs) that interview and uh you know to thank her for being so gracious with her time i offered her um a private lesson for jujitsu we had a lesson and then that turned into a second lesson and then uh somehow one day i woke up and i was her head mma coach so you learned how to be an MMA coach through her. Well, I, that's that's not exactly right. So I, I guess I skipped some some pretty big stuff there. I was actually running an MMA academy in Illinois. Oh, okay, okay. So I was a head trainer and general manager of an academy in Illinois. Oh, okay, and okay. Worked for several academies in Illinois. So I'd really, um, but by the time I had met Savannah, um, you know, because I certainly was always passionate about MMA and martial arts in general. But like I had said, I really decided to. Uh, pursue academia, but you know I could still get paid teaching martial arts and still continue to train. And this was you know, just something on the side. Yeah, it was. It was sort of more or less on the side. But I was I was coaching, you know, both professional and amateur mixed martial arts bouts at that time too. But by the time I had met Savannah, that was sort of something that was in the past. You know, I was still you know heavily heavily training jujitsu and Muay Thai and stuff. But in terms of uh, you know, coaching at the professional level wasn't wasn't something I really was focused on at that time. And, uh, you know, as the universe would have it, it just sort of we our paths crossed and uh, we've been we've been making things work. And so uh, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't change a thing. It all worked out pretty amazing. You mentioned that it was important for you to stay with the Henzo Gracie School. Did you train at a Henzo affiliate out in Illinois? So um, I had trained at some some really great schools in the Midwest. I trained at a, at a Gracie Baja Academy in Kenosha under a Professor Dave Rosenmarkle. I had also trained at 360 BJJ. Um, I, I, forget, I forget which city that technically is, but it's, it's outside of Milwaukee. Um, and that was under Professor Scott Houston. Um, so I, was, I trained some pretty great academies, but about once a year, I would fly out. I would save up my money all year to fly out to New York because to go train with John Danaher and some of his students like Gary Tonin, Gordon Ryan, Eddie Cummings. Um, it was just frankly unlike anything I could possibly experience in Midwest. And so um, when I had the opportunity to actually you know, apply to PhD programs, knowing I, it could take me somewhere, um, it was either going to be there in New York City or to the Los Angeles uh, affiliate, which I was at for about two years after moving out here and, and then recently switched academies. I'm now in Torrance at a Golden State BJJ. Deciding to go into a PhD program as an undergrad is pretty early in the game, I feel like. How did you know from, what was it, like your senior year or was it like your junior year, you knew that you were going to go into a PhD program, especially like something like sociology. Mm-hmm. Usually people decide to get a postgraduate degree early on if it's something like law or medicine. Sure. You don't often hear about sociology. Yeah, no, I, I think that's quite right. Um, you know, I, I've i been, I've had very, I, I've had a few really, really uh, lucky uh, things to happen in my lifetime. And one of them was meeting my original uh, introduction to sociology professor. I was at a community college at this time, so I wasn't even at a university yet. 
And, um, you know, I was at a point in my life where, you know, I was, I was basically enrolled in college just because my parents told me to, you know, I really had no interest in school whatsoever. I didn't do particularly well in high school. Uh, and I had just, I'd walked into this introduction to sociology course and just, just watching, it, it wasn't even so much the subject matter, but watching my instructor teach and I'm looking at him and he has what, what I would have considered in my head at that time, a, a, a real job, an adult job. Uh, but he didn't look miserable. He's just up there talking to college kids. He's making jokes. He's talking about things that he's interested in. And I thought to myself, well, surely I could do that. That doesn't seem too difficult. And uh, the last day of the semester, I went up to him and I basically told him, I think I want your job. And, uh, you know, I was like, what, you know, how does that work? You know, do I major in education? You know, I didn't really even understand what the job was. Um, and he was like, no, you would of course have to major in sociology. You would have to get a graduate degree. Um, that's what I did. I went to this school called DePaul. You might want to look into it. And I just literally did all of those things. And um, and so I rid, you know, I went to DePaul and then as an undergrad, I applied to the the master's program there, but still ultimately knowing I would I would then move on to a PhD program. Um, which you are currently in still? Yes, yes. And so I'm in my third year at UCR uh, in the sociology department. And, um, and one of the things I have to do as a graduate student, of course, is to teach classes too. And I'll often ask my undergraduates, you know, why sociology? Why have you chosen sociology? And it's, it's a reminder to me hearing their answers that uh, how lucky I was to have identified a career in sociology really truly before even identifying it as a major. Um, you know, the, a lot of the responses I'll hear is, you know, I, I really find this thing interesting or, you know, I want to help people or, you know, these are all great answers, of course, but they really hadn't, you know, in, in, with my students, a lot of them have not identified a career in sociology necessarily. They just know something about it speaks to them. And so we might as well follow it. I was really, really lucky to have identified, you know, so early on that I, you know, what a career in sociology would look like and that that appealed to me. And uh, yeah. The teaching path, you mean? The teaching path, yep. What is sociology for people who don't know what it is? Yeah, Savannah asked me just, just recently, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so uh, sociology is, is the scientific study of society. Uh, and so whereas psychology, for instance, might be more concerned with uh, individual behavior, you know, how does one's development affect them, you know, later on and such. Uh, sociologists are more concerned with society, you know, on a macro level interactions. Now there's micro sociology, of course, I would consider myself, in fact, a micro sociologist. But um, whereas, you know, our, our explanations for things might be different. Whereas saying, oh, you know, uh, this person experienced this traumatic event or there's something in their in their nature or something in their brain chemistry or something. We're more concerned with socialization processes and uh, cultural practices and interactions between individuals and uh, how these things lead to, you know, social phenomena. What is your emphasis? I guess first and foremost, certainly at this point, a sociologist of sport, which might not surprise you. Um, and then with a particular focus on gender studies. And so, you know, I identified a project on women's mixed martial arts, which of course, you know, encompasses both of those things. Um, and so as a, as a micro sociologist, then uh, certainly with my dissertation. Let's back up. Yeah. What is sociology of sports? Oh, okay. So a sociology of sport would... Um, Sport is is such an interesting arena for understanding really anything about society. You know, it's it's in many ways uh, a lot of the things that exist in society just magnified in front of our eyes. And so when you you know you look at 
uh, you could think about, um, you know, athletes thanking God after, after winning a fist fight, for instance, you know, what, what is it about, you know, uh, in this thinking that, you know, certainly God has chosen me to win this, this barbaric fight, right? Like these, you just see all these interesting things or, um, you know, women's mix, mixed martial arts, you know, it's certainly very progressive in that, um, it, it transgresses a lot of uh, traditional notions of femininity, right? Um, and it's also, unlike some other sports, uh, the women play by the exact same rules as the men. They don't have shorter rounds, for instance, or something like that. However, uh, a lot of the, the women athletes are still ultimately sexualized. Uh, the way they're marketed is certainly quite different than the men, you know? So a sociologist of sport would be very interested in a lot of these things. Um, is gender studies a school within sociology or is it its own thing? Yes and no, it, it's both. So, um, so for instance, at UCR, there is, there's a gender and sexualities department, but then there's also a, an emphasis or a specialization of gender studies within sociology, which is what I occupy. The reason why I'm asking you all these questions is because the reason why we created a podcast was because it seems like when you just have an MMA podcast or a podcast that talks about MMA, it's not like they're explicitly political. But it does come up, especially just in their worldview. And it doesn't tend to be progressive. Sure. And it tends to be more reactionary. Like, why? Why do we need to change anything, right? Uh -huh. And uh, I think we, after a while, we just got sick of it. And it's like, let's make our own podcast. And so, like, if you listen to a lot of these type of podcasts, gender studies, sociology, they don't like it. Yeah, yeah. They usually have more individual-centric academics, more about evolutionary psychology. Sure. Mostly. So we were like, oh, we got a sociologist, which is something you don't ever really get on MMA podcasts anyway. Uh -huh. And then uh, sociologist sports with a gender emphasis. So there's just like a lot that we'd want to pick out of your brain. So what is gender studies? Yeah, yeah. I suppose I suppose it depends who you ask, you know. Uh, so certainly in my case, as someone who's, who's a sociologist first and foremost, but um, with an emphasis on gender. Um, you know, there are many, many different paths you can take it. So a lot of sociologists, for instance, would consider themselves uh, like like uh, intersectionality theory is something that's that uh, is very, very uh, popular within my particular department. You know, understanding the intersections between, uh, you know, race, class and gender, for instance, as opposed to just understanding gender as uh, this one static thing that everyone experiences in the same way, which, of course, we don't. Um, so in in my case, you know, I I do uh, I I do I guess in my work see see gender as an as as an as an independent standalone variable. Uh, that's not to at all distance myself from uh, intersectionality, but uh, I am particularly interested in in how gender itself uh, you know impacts you know someone like savannah's experience as a mixed martial arts fighter um having worked with their you know in in this past year i i can already you know there are endless situations that are just vastly different than than my experience as a you know former mixed martial arts fighter or you know current jiu-jitsu competitor um and so for me as as a sociologist who you know, spent so much time and continues to spend so much time in martial art, martial arts academies, it's hard for me not to see how gen gender manifests itself in, in basically every interaction as a martial artist.
Was that something you were always interested in, like the cultural phenomena of interactions, or was it really after meeting that person and you just happen to be open-minded to these ideas? That's yeah, a good question. So I, I have this theory that, and I, it's, and I, it's certainly not my own theory, but that basically everyone's a sociologist. Everybody walks around with ideas about society, right? And opinions about people and and unique perspectives on and why these particular people do this thing. And you know, we all have different pet peeves that are, of course, informed by those perspectives and our own experiences etc um so you know i i like everyone else certainly did have these opinions and stuff and so when i was introduced to sociology i was like i guess what appealed uh, to me was just how how broad the discipline of sociology was that um you know that i could later find out that something like a project on women's mixed martial arts was a viable dissertation but but yeah, I, I guess uh, the open-minded part of it was was something I fortunately had when I came in, and you know what? And I don't, I don't know that I really thought that I was open-minded. I think really I came in going, "This is just another class that I have to do." But I, I think my instructor was was just so so brilliant that it had that that huge impact on me, and and that's the reason why I continue to keep in touch with them today, and and really. Uh, continuously thank him for his efforts, uh, and it's and it's a big inspiration for me as a as an aspiring educator as well to to have that impact on people who might not otherwise be ambitious about school or you know. Savannah, when you first met Justin, then because you were just running into MMA, like you were just in there with a lot of momentum and going into boxing and then jujitsu right away and then fighting MMA, so it was a lot of gym culture very quickly, right? Mm -hmm was the relationship that you built with Justin kind of unique and the reason why you guys clicked because he wasn't like a gym culture kind of sounding guy yeah. like was it better in how he explained things to you yeah i think um even before he contacted me for uh for his for his research um i actually knew who he, who he was prior because um daniele and i were watching um some videos of some guy like doing all these entries to Ashigarami. I was like, oh my God, he's so slick. And you're just like, who is this guy? And then turns out like he reached out to me and we're like, do I know? Like, where have I seen you? And it, it turned out he was the 20 entries guy. So um he was already a YouTube star. Is that it, what's going on? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so um so yeah, like uh when he offered to, to train me, I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I couldn't pass that up. But um yeah, just the way he broke everything down is uh, very unique. And it's so I've you know, I've met many different coaches and trainers and, and you know, um some things just click with me better than others and it's just every time Justin had to break something down, I was just able to, I was just able to absorb it so so well. So it was just whatever that that dynamic was, it just worked perfectly. So is this kind of more like Justin, you're making an exception for Savannah as you're pursuing uh, your degree and becoming a lecturer down the line, or you're just kind of more open-ended and you're like, we'll see, maybe I'll train other people. Maybe I'll do MMA coaching more. Yeah. So, um, you know, even when I met Savannah, I was, uh, I was currently teaching uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu classes at a Henzo Gracie Academy okay. as well. So I was already teaching, but I didn't, I certainly was not cornering anyone in MMA or, or even coaching anyone that they compete in MMA, much less at the pro level. Um, I might have, I certainly might have uh, 
helped Savannah with the, with one or two things, but Savannah has been a very, very big help to me in ways that she probably doesn't even understand yet. So, you know, the short answer to your question is, is no, this is, this is no longer something I'm doing just on the side. Um, and that is in many ways, um, because of Savannah. So in working with Savannah, it is, it is, created opportunities for me that I, I wasn't even really looking for at the time that uh, I, I can't say a ton about just yet, unfortunately, but um, but I have some things this year in particular that I'm just absolutely thrilled about, just beyond excited that, uh, that quite frankly, might not have happened without Savannah. So um, she might she, she might owe me a little bit, but it, it doesn't compare to what I owe her. That's for sure. Usually, like when somebody starts out at a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Academy and they get into MMA, it's more like they can teach you striking because there's often a Muay Thai program or what to do off of your back. But often they miss a lot of the transition middle stuff because they didn't come up wrestling. Like wrestling has become the real linchpin in MMA that puts the whole thing together. And so that's why I was kind of surprised that you didn't start anything at 17 because I thought you were a wrestler because I had like looked up some of the stuff you were doing. Uh-huh. You were doing a lot of no gi. I was like, I kind of picture in my mind, you know, you have like these video game characters and you're like, oh, he's a wrestler type. Okay. Uh, but was it for you? Like you learned all of that in the MMA Academy, like the wrestling, the Muay Thai, the MMA all together, the jujitsu. Yeah, so when I when I first started, you know, training uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and Muay Thai, they were very much separate from from uh, one another. Um, and you know, you, anyone who trains Jiu Jitsu ultimately does train a little bit of wrestling. Um, but training in the Midwest, everybody learns wrestling. That's where I was getting at. Yeah, <laughs> that the Midwest just through it? osmosis, I think. Uh, you know, at least half of my training partners at some point were were active college wrestlers. It was just, there was no getting around it. And so um, when I had the opportunity to actually become the head coach of an MMA academy, um, one of the best things that ever happened to me in my development as a martial artist is that we were able to afford uh, a full cage within the academy. And that's quite honestly, that's when I really learned how to wrestle. I I had always trained wrestling and I and I was able to work with some some very talented wrestlers. Uh, one of the people that um, I had done a brief wrestling, I did do a brief wrestling camp. It was very, very brief. That's really my my the limit to my wrestling experience, at least, you know, uh, you know, um, proper wrestling. But um, one of the people I actually worked with in that camp uh, wrestled in the most recent Olympics. So it's, you know, we, there was no shortage of talent in terms of wrestling. And so when we got a cage in our academy, it attracted a lot of these people too. And that's when I really realized how different wrestling was for mixed martial arts. Um, because I was training with people who were far more credentialed than me when it came to wrestling. Many of them bigger than me, stronger than me, faster than me. And yet I could take all of them down, uh, which was a very big surprise to me in the beginning. And once I started to experience that, it really changed how I approach mixed martial arts and realized that wrestling was something that could be very, very effective for me. And I was doing in a way that I felt was perhaps different than, than how you know the more traditionally trained wrestlers were doing. Um, and so... You know, while I did not compete uh, in wrestling, you know, wrestling became, you know, really a, an important base for me in my mixed martial arts. You mentioned wrestling as different from MMA, mm-hmm. and it reminded me a lot of 
the recent matchup between Yo Romero and Robert Whittaker. Sure. If you just took them on a wrestling, put them on a mat, there's no question Yo Romero would wipe the floor with Whittaker. Maybe not now because Whittaker has gotten so much better. But what Whittaker did, and when you mentioned the cage, he made sure he got his body across the cage, put the knee up so that Yo Romero couldn't hook it, and then he just stood back up. Yep. And Romero didn't have an answer because even with all his wrestling training, he's not used to it. There's no cage for them to get up. It was like, hmm, that's odd. No matter how many times he's been able to drill that at American Top Team, Whitaker says, like, I just need to get up. I don't need to out-wrestle you. I just need to figure right. out how not to stay here. And when you mentioned, oh, I could take these people down, you see people like Bisping come from a country with no wrestling. And he's still able to compete competitively against guys who've been wrestling since they were five. No, that's quite right. And the, and the same holds true for uh, for any martial art discipline. So a recent example would be, uh, oh, I, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name now, uh, who just knocked out Gokan Saki in the UFC. Khalil with uh, Roundtree. Khalil Roundtree, that's right. Uh, you know, certainly if you were to see those two matched up in a K1 bout, you wouldn't expect it to even be competitive. Uh, and it is not to say anything about Roundtree, but his, his resume looks nothing like Okansaki's. Um, similar to how a lot of, uh, especially in the earlier days, a lot of, uh, you know, highly competitive and accomplished Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts would come into the UFC or any mixed martial arts organization, and some of them did not look so great. Um the the rules of one particular sport are certainly they're always going to dictate how you know how people you know uh ultimately do perform and so with brazilian jiu-jitsu for instance you might have someone who's a multiple time world champion in the gi who their entire game might be i'm going to establish a grip i'm going to pull guard uh i'm going to sweep and win by you know two points or i'm going to win by an advantage and then you see this person not look good on the ground in mma and you go but they're a world champion yeah well uh that it doesn't necessarily mean in their career they were taking people down and submitting them you know someone like a gary tonin brings a much different skill set than someone who uh you know ultimately does win their matches uh not just in the gi but by you know maybe just a sweep or an advantage or something like that um and so when whenever you see someone with a with a you know a, an impressive resume in one particular martial art yeah that's of course reason to expect that they have potential to be great in mma but it certainly doesn't ensure it yeah tying it back to wrestling i know people always bring up the wrestling credentials of phil davis or Mark Munoz, but even if you look at their wrestling careers, a lot of their wins have been done by reversals. Or exactly. Pins. So their takedowns weren't that strong in wrestling. So it's not surprising to see someone like Phil Davis when he goes against like a Rashad or a Rumble Johnson. Like he can't take him down. Absolutely. In pure wrestling, he would have won. But within that rule set of MMA, it's like, oh, well, if we were scrambling, I would have gotten a better right. job. But if that guy is not shooting, then it's like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? I mean, you could you could be a world champion wrestler and never take anyone down. You could just win all your matches by escapes, you know? Right. Um, and you certainly, because we identify takedowns as the essential ingredient of wrestling, um, we assume that everyone who's an accomplished wrestler is great at taking people down, but uh, that's it's not the case. Well, that also shows you how much rules and how the points create the way you fight. So... In wrestling, takedowns are part of it, but it's not the end-all be-all. Whereas MMA puts more emphasis on takedowns than regular folk-style, freestyle wrestling. And because of that, then that aspect of wrestling becomes weighted heavier. So it's kind of like you have to respect MMA as its own thing. 
not even like a hybrid of a bunch of things. I think that's how they used to think of it. Like when we're in this range, we're doing this martial right, arts. Right. Where when we're in clinching, we're in this martial art. And you can't think of it like that anymore. You have to right. think of it as just MMA from the beginning to the end. Yeah, it's funny. Dan Danaher has like a, I forget how he breaks it down. He breaks it into several different components of mixed martial arts. Uh, and he identifies it much different how most, but he doesn't look at, okay, here you have striking, here you have this. He has like, Oh, it's something like you know, shoot box, of course, and then it's like fence wrestling or something. But he he has his different ways where he distinguishes it too. Um, but I I do think that's one of the things that I was able to identify somewhat early on that that maybe not everybody did is just simply how different how how different mixed martial arts is from everything else. It's not just a collection of different arts. It is very much its own art. And if you do not give it that proper respect, you will not succeed. It's interesting to watch the evolution of MMA coaching over the years because I've been watching UFC since UFC 1. At the beginning, it was just very simple combinations of punches and then a takedown and then ground and pound or whatever. And then it was like this paradigm shift like the old school, like Lion's Den, or maybe even Militech trained fighters, their minds couldn't even comprehend like the idea of fighting differently in different ranges. Right. Like first in this range, you're doing this, this range, you're doing that. Right. And now from there, those coaches, not even maybe a hard time thinking about it, but it, it is hard to like change the way you've been coaching and thinking about the art and realizing, wait, maybe this doesn't encapsulate all the uh, nooks and crannies of this martial art. I maybe have to think about it a different way. I remember there was some MMA journalists talking about that. There's how much of a seismic shift it was even to think about it in ranges. Now to go from ranges to say, no, you're not doing different martial arts when you're in this range to that range. You have to just do full MMA from beginning right. to end. It's just like, what? Right. And people take a lot of the their lessons from individual uh, disciplines for granted in that uh, so, so like one of the particular skills that I'm uh, somewhat focused on right now in jujitsu specifically is passing the guard. Uh, I'm trying to improve my loose passing, my tight passing, really just trying to focus on passing in general. However, in MMA, um, I, I passing the guard is probably the thing that I emphasize the least. I, I don't give it particular importance in mixed martial arts. Uh, in mixed martial arts, I'm far more concerned with the pin element of controlling on the ground. So when you, one of the things that uh, reflects in my coaching strategy with Savannah is I'll ask Savannah why we do things a lot of times. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Um, and if the answer is, I don't know, well, then we need to talk about it. So for instance, in passing the guard in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, well, why do you pass the guard? We well, pass the guard for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, because you're actually awarded points for doing so. Beyond that, it opens up opportunities for submissions. But you can also attack the legs, of course. You can just, why do we need to pass the guard if the legs are there? Well, because if I attack the legs and I fail to submit my opponent and they come on top, well, then I've just lost two points. Um, and so in, in mixed martial arts, uh, you're, we, as you noted, we, we give such great importance to being on top in mixed martial arts. It completely changes how the bottom player is going to react to being taken down. Why do I need to focus on breaking your guard open and passing when I know that you're going to focus on trying to get back to the feet? So I would rather focus my energy on securing a pin rather than passing your legs. In fact, what's, what better pin, what, what position do I have more of my body centered over your body? Than a closed guard. 
this is not true for any other position. Full mount, uh, side control, the back, of course, is a great position. But even that, it's it's not the same sort of pin as being in closed guard, um, especially when you're going to open your guard for me because you're going to have to if you want to get up. Um, passing is just, it's, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't know how to pass the guard for MMA, but we should think about why we're passing the guard for MMA. There's a lot of problems with MMA judging and enough people have complained about that. So I don't want to do a rerun of that. I want to focus on the other side, touching upon what you're talking about right now, which is that a lot of people complain about judging because they're like, these judges don't understand, but they're bringing a schema from a different art. Like they don't understand jujitsu. Like uh, they were passing the guard. Right. And it's like, if you look at the rules of the UFC, they don't put any emphasis on judging on passing at all. It's not in there. So they're bringing a schema a way of thinking about fighting from jiu-jitsu. And you'll also hear that about wrestling. They don't understand wrestling or they don't understand Muay Thai. And sometimes fans will judge the quality of a fighter or a fight within those frameworks that they have, but they're not judging it as MMA. They don't realize MMA doesn't care about that other bullshit that you care about. You care about that because you train Brazilian jiu-jitsu right. in your sport or in your art or in your uh, fantasy scenario of a self-defense uh, situation. Those things matter. In prize fighting, that doesn't matter. Yeah. These other considerations matter. So I think that's part of it. A lot of uh, the coaches fail to understand that and they blame the judges. Yep. And like I said, the judges have problems too. And a lot of fans do that. But I think you're right that in MMA, pinning matters more. Yeah. Because so much of it, the emphasis is on takedowns, being on top, and doing damage. I would say damage is weighted heavier than attempts to finish. But there's a lot of, you know, jujitsu tournaments trying to change the rules or the, the scoring system mm -hmm. to put more emphasis on that. And even they're having a hard time to do that. Whereas hitting, you could quantify it with sure. metrics, right? So as something has more money involved and people place bets, everything has to be able to be quantified and defensible. Yeah. And these kind of subjective things like how close were they to finishing or passing is hard. Were they hitting each other? Were they in a position to hit the other person harder? Then the bottom person punching up, right? Yes. Then right. you have to give more damage and more points to the top person. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think, uh, yeah, it's it's funny how few people, uh, one, even even know the rules in general. Even you know how how many coaches could could accurately uh, cite the the scoring criteria, for instance, and then how many really understand that beyond that how many judges really understand the scoring criteria and the order of the scoring criteria? Um, it's it's sort of ill-defined, quite honestly. Uh, I don't think we quite know how to score mixed martial arts yet. We It's gotten better, but I don't think we've figured it out. And so things like that of, you know, of course, trying to be as objective as possible. Well, instead of gauging, well, who hit the other one harder? Well, this person's on top. That's pretty easy to quantify or at least, uh, you know, to be able to at least evaluate, right? Um, but there's, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. So I, I actually heard um, heard you guys discussing on a previous episode, TJ Doshaw and, and uh, Henry Cejudo. And I actually just this morning rewatched uh, Henry Cejudo and Demetrius Johnson. I originally had scored the fight for Demetrius Johnson. I th I thought he did, you know, more damage, et cetera, more, more effective striking. As most fans did. Yeah, but... Uh, even the, you know, even something like effective striking is, is a pretty subjective, uh, you know, criterion. What does that mean? Effective is if the, if the, if the intended effect was to make contact, 
well, then we can quantify this. Who landed more? But if the effect is to cause damage, well, that's it's a little hard to evaluate. And it's do we evaluate it by the fact that well, Henry was bleeding, he had a small cut over his eye, um, or do we, you know, or do we evaluate it by, you know, this person's leg was marked up? It's it's really tough. And so uh, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, especially with effective striking, we look at the numbers, and especially with Demetrius because he's somebody that really spreads out the way he hits you, you know, head, body, legs, everything on both sides, you want to equate them as all equivalent, but judges actually award more for head than any other part of the body. So if I were to be really charitable and say he outstruck him, then I would have to also do that to Joanna Champion when she fought Rose Namajunas Uh because Joanna did a whole shitload of leg kicks, but Rose punched her in the face more. Right. But if you did overall strikes, I think Joanna still hit her more. Right. But in that fight, we like Rose, so we were more charitable to her punches to the face than the leg kicks. But we love Demetrius if you're a real hardcore fight fan. So you rated his kicks more because you like him. And also that first kick fucked up uh, Cejudo. Right, so right. So you're like, that's more damage. Right, is that, is that, does that count as damage or is that, oh, he tripped, he was, you know, like it's these or things. Or fluke. Right, right, is it just a fluke? So it's it's really tough to gauge these things sometimes. And, uh, you know, the, the judges have their work cut out for them. I, I was able to judge I, uh, for, for one event at an XFO event in Illinois, just, I wasn't an official judge. I was really, uh, sort sort of shadowing a judge, and you know, I but I you know turned in my own scorecards and stuff. And uh, I will say it was much different doing it in person. It was it was very very difficult. Uh, things happen that you don't give a lot of consideration to until you're actually charged with making a decision in that moment. And uh, it's it's more difficult than it looks. I certainly was. I'm less critical now of judges having done the experience than I than I was previously. But um, even back to the the conversation we were having about uh, how the rules will dictate, you know, how different, you know. So in, in Muay Thai, for instance, uh, if I go to kick you in the leg, what do you do? You check it, right? Why do you check it? Is it's an effective way to block, of course. But why else? Because if you get kicked in in the shin, it's it's not scored, right? Um, now, what if I kick you to the body? Then what do you do? Well, if you cover with your arms, even if you effectively block it, that still scores. That's a scoring area. But if you block it with your leg, well, then it's a that's counted as a block. So you see Muay Thai fighters will block pretty much everything with their legs, right? But in mixed martial arts, being on one leg is one of the biggest disadvantages you can have. It's it's not something you want to do for any extended period of time, right? But if you've spent your entire career defending kicks by raising your leg, that's how you're going to do it. And that's and you've been taught that that's the correct way to do it. And it's, of course, a correct way to do it. But um, in a mixed martial arts context, I don't know how much sense it makes sometimes, especially if a kick to the leg is going to be scored so so poorly. You know, um, it, it might behoove you instead to try to get a takedown off of that or try to land a punch that will be scored much higher. So, you know, these things just they haven't been sorted out yet. Uh, we're, we're getting there, but there are still still a lot of questions. Yeah, I often see Muay Thai guys complain like, oh, they don't know how to score striking effectively or correctly in MMA. Or they look at the resume of the Muay Thai fighter. And I think it's just like wrestling. It doesn't tell you everything because you don't know what type of striker there was. Because especially if they fought in Thailand, I think a lot of times if you're the number one best fighter, 
and you won a lot of your fights, you know, I think a lot of fights go to decision just because they fight so often mm -hmm. that it's hard to just finish every guy. Sure. But then you find out the best guy is usually the best body kicker and clincher. Yep. It's not the person actually trying to wail on you in the head looking for the knockout. Sometimes they get mad because they're like, dude, I got to fight again next week. Yep. What are you doing? Absolutely. And also so much of it is the gamblers like that style of fighting more. Is that the most effective way to do striking? I don't know. I would say no. But if you were a Muay Thai champion and that's how you won, people think it doesn't matter. Muay Thai is just about striking. So that is the most effective way. And MMA doesn't care what you think is effective. <laughs> like it has its own rules. MMA really gets a bad rap for producing poor strikers. And I just could not disagree with that more. Um, it's, it's poor if you're looking at it through the lens of Muay Thai or if you're looking at it through, through boxing. Um, the cultural phenomena of those sports, they have right. their own lens. They all have their own culture. Exactly. But if you're looking at um, what's the most effective form of striking in an open context where essentially you can do pretty much anything you want, including, of course, grappling, uh, how anyone could argue for anything other than mixed martial arts striking is, is beyond me. It's if that were true, that is the style you would see in mixed martial arts. And it's, of course, it doesn't mean that what we're currently seeing in terms of striking in mixed martial arts is the, is the best we'll ever see. But if it's, if it's currently dominating, there's, there's a good reason for why it is. And I think there's nothing more objective, even to somebody who's not trained than you being on top of the other person and sitting on them and punching them in the face and they can't do anything. That's pretty objective. It's, it's, it's close. It's close to it, right? Savannah, do you leave a lot of the tape study and the analysis to Justin or your other coaches, or do you yourself want to watch a lot of tape and try to figure it out? Like what gives you more comfort? What makes you more of a confident fighter? Uh, yeah, I like, uh, I like leaving all that to my coach or anybody else. Um, uh, actually, um, the reason why, another reason why Justin's so perfect is because he, the way he sees things and analyzes things and breaks things down is so similar to Daniele, uh, but I just can't hear it from Danny. Like I get offended, <laughs> but with Justin, it's just like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know why Daniele tells me everything he says is right, but just for some reason. Um, so yeah, uh, like that, Danny likes to show me footage of other fighters, and I'm just like, you tell me like <laughs> what they're doing wrong and how we can exploit it because I can't, I, I don't know, I, I just don't see it. Or because in my mind, is like, I'm gonna go in there and do my thing and beat anyone, or you know, that's I'm just gonna go in there and do my thing. I don't, and then, um, that's why I like it for Justin to kind of. He tells me what to do and I do it basically. But do you have natural preferences as an MMA fighter? Do you feel more confident if you keep it striking or do you find uh, like you have a preference more for pressuring or leading or inviting them to attack first? Or do you just kind of approach it more like a robot? You're like, whatever coach says, that's what I'll do. Um, I do have, I mean, since I have a, a boxing background, mm -hmm. I like to, I'd rather be in range to, to work my hands. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm a lot better now um, since uh, training with Justin. Um, like when people were throwing, you know, women are really good at throwing kicks mm -hmm. to the head. So when I see that coming, I would either shell up or and eat it or, or like try to back out and eat it. But now I'm getting better at just closing the distance and, and you know, trying to land a punch. Um, it is confusing the first time you get head kicked, even <laughs> if you've trained other martial arts, but maybe you've never been head kicked before. You don't know what the right thing is. Do you step into it? Yeah. Do you step out? <laughs> you don't know. Do I just block it? Yeah. What, what is it? Yeah. So that was kind of confusing you at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've had three professional fights. Mm -hmm. So let's say your first fight, 
Do you remember anything your trainer said to you? Or as soon as you went out there, you were like, beast mode. I don't remember anything. Just go kill. Basically, yeah, it was a lot of adrenaline for my first one. Um, and I was just kind of, there was a few things I had in mind that I wanted to 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 work in there. And um, a, couple of, a couple of things I was drilling. So I, I had those things in mind. So it wasn't just like, ah, just throwing haymakers a little bit. But um, uh, but now for working with Justin, now I have, it's such a difference now that I'm in there, like in my sparring sessions, having some kind of goal in mind, like looking for a takedown or looking for these combinations. And, and whereas before I was just kind of working off instinct and kind of a generic win, yeah, like yeah, very just, abstract just, and broad yeah, yeah. instead <laughs> of having more, something more specific. Yes, exactly. For that last fight you had, was that your first fight for one? Mm-hmm. And did you guys have a specific game plan in mind and did you execute it the way you had planned it or did it go because it got finished on the ground? Yeah. Is that what you guys had planned for? Uh, well, we, I wanted to keep it on the feet, but we, we know from studying, you know, my opponent's fights that she likes to kind of grab for the head. So we drilled endlessly, like how to respond to that kind of thing. So, um, even if, the first thing didn't work. She eventually grabbed my head and um, that wasn't supposed to happen, but I already had a response for that because we're drilling for, for worst case scenarios. And, and uh, so I had, an, I had an answer for everything. So, so you had drilled it so much. It was almost like autopilot. Yes. Exactly. When she does this, I'm mm-hmm. doing this. Yep. How helpful now is YouTube? Like when you're tape studying <laughs> and shit, right? Like yeah. I don't even know how people did it back in the day. They're like mystery opponent X and it's just a silhouette. I don't know who it is. I know who the name is, but I can't find any footage. Whereas now like fighters, want to show off so they've kind of put their fights online as a coach that must be real helpful yeah and in in submission grappling that's still very much the case where uh you know you show up to a tournament you have no idea who's even entered in the tournament you don't know how many people how many matches you're gonna have to have that day so for mma to have like one opponent picked out months ahead of time they have footage online it's yeah as a coach it's really really exciting of course uh savannah said something funny to me after the fight where she was like man, like, you know, I just felt so relaxed. You, you know, all I had to do is, was what you said. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's like, that's a lot though. That's like the 99.9% of it. Right. I just had to stand on the other side of the cage and smile as you won in 81 seconds. Um, so even, you know, with all the preparation we can do and stuff at the end of the day, the athlete still has to perform. And, I personally, uh, I've I've had the the opportunity to work with some very very talented athletes, some amazing fighters. I have never worked with someone who has as strong of a mind as Savannah does, and that's that's just the truth. Um, she was so relaxed the entire week leading up to the fight. Where you know, and and mind you, we're in a different continent, much less a different country at this point. Um, and it just just has an an unshakable confidence about her and in a calm that is it's you know as a competitor myself i've always strived to to feel that and quite frankly i i'm still not there so to that's one of the things that most excited me about working with savannah is is seeing that in her and being you know because it's i mean you have remarkable athletes who will just never accomplish that and for someone with as as little experience professional experience as savannah has to already have that is is frankly it's unbelievable were you always kind of naturally poised like that like he was talking about that you're very relaxed is that something that's natural to you or do you meditate or what is your key to that 
Well, I think I've always been pretty just chill. Um, like I remember my first fight, um, Danny always likes to talk about like, you know, we're sitting in, in the locker room and there's other fighters going in before me and they come back bleeding and busted up. And like for him, like that's kind of eerie. But for me, I was like, I was just like, oh my God, that's real blood. <laughs> it's just like, ex it was exciting. It's like a, and I don't know, like in a, being in an actual adventure, I was just always been that way, just wanting to live an adventurous action filled life. So I was like, oh my God, I'm doing this. So, and then being with Justin, like he says I'm really calm and poised, but I mean, yes, I am, but it, it, it helps with him being so confident in everything that we're doing and, and the way that, you know, whenever I have a question, the way he can explain things and, and okay, then, you know, that makes sense to me. So if his energy was more like neurotic or anxious, yeah, that, that would, would totally affect, affect So, me so long as everybody around you mm -hmm. is also trying to remain calm, then you can remain yeah, calm. Yeah, I'm cool. And if you're cool, then we're all cool. But if you're, I'm cool and you're freaking out, then I'm like, why are we freaking out? Should I worry, worry too? But he was just absolutely just, just perfect the whole time, the whole that's, trip. That's an aspect of MMA people don't even consider too much about it, right? Is what is the environment that is surrounding the fighter? And yeah. you often hear it almost like an excuse. They said, there's a lot of things going on, but just the way you said it, yeah, I, I would imagine that MMA fighters are very susceptible to other people's energy. Mm -hmm. So when they talk about these personal problems or there's just a lot of anxiety and just just a lot of negativity around them, it must affect them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's interesting because if we look at the top level coaches right now in MMA, there's Faraz, there's John Danaher, there is Mark Henry and Dwayne Ludwig. And it seems... Savannah actually has an interesting cross-section because she has somebody who's an academic like a Danaher or a Faraz who can break things down from the top level and say, okay, there has to be a philosophical reason why we do certain moves, why we go for certain things, and then we have to figure out a reason. But you get that personalized attention of a Mark Henry or a Dwayne Ludwig where, no, no, this is all I'm going to do. I don't have a stable of people that I need to worry about so-and-so has a fight coming up. Okay, um, why don't you just go hit the bag in the corner and then I'll come in 10 minutes. It's like, uh, that doesn't really help me. So it seems to be a good mix of both that you have. And it helps break down certain moves of like, well, I like throwing the jab. It's like, but when are you throwing it? Are you just throwing it to gauge distance? Are you using it to keep people away? Are you using it to score damage? So I think it becomes really important down the line. And if you had to pinpoint one I'm sure there's many, but one thing that has greatly improved since you got with Justin, what would it be? My my wrestling, my overall grappling, I would say, uh, and um, and he since he knows like my strength is in my boxing, he he shows me uh, aspects of of grappling that allow me to to work my my strength in the game, basically. One of the things that one championship is known for that a lot of MMA journalists are talking about is their weigh-in process. What makes their weighing process so unique? Yeah, so they don't want you cutting uh, water weight. So they want they have you fighting around your walking weight. Um, uh, so when we arrive there, they do an initial just weight, just like weight check. Just it's nothing official. Just kind of get a gauge of where you're at. And then the day after, we have our first official hydration test, right? And then uh, and weight check. How do they do the hydration test? You pee in a cup. Oh, okay. And then you do the same test the next day. Uh, okay. You have to pass both times. I think they measure the gravity in your urine or something, right? To see how dehydrated you are or how much. It's something like that. I, I, I wish I understood it better. Um, but one test is the day before uh, the fight and then one is the day of the fight. 
one before the fight and then one two days before the fight. Okay. And if you don't pass one of those, you test. You have to test the day of the fight. What if you failed the day of hydration test? Then you wouldn't be fighting. Oh, wow. So it's not just about missing weight. It's also about you can make weight and then not be properly hydrated and they'll cancel the fight. That's the idea anyway. Yeah. I mean, this is all a learning process for us, but everything worked out well. We, we had a gym to, to kind of allow me to sweat off some extra pounds. And um, Did one set that gym stuff up or did you have to set it up? So I actually set that up. Um, fortunately, uh, my jiu-jitsu professors actually had a contact out in Kuala Lumpur. So that was, you know, just really lucky. Um, but I reached out to them. Um, and so they had, they had opened the doors to an academy called... Uh, X-Team Fight Academy in Kuala Lumpur. And it was the most amazing academy we could have ever asked for. I mean, it was just a beautiful facility. They had everything we could possibly want. They had multiple rings. They had a full cage. Um, they certainly had scales. It was, and then just the the climate itself out there made it very easy to, to make weight. You pretty much uh, start sweating the second you get off the plane. So, um, and I, I guess I, I should, I should amend what I said earlier in that if you, if you just miss weight, um, you, you still are able to fight. So in, in Savannah's case, her opponent actually did miss weight. So she missed weight by uh, several pounds. But I think if you fail the hydration test the day of the fight or the, you know, uh, if you had to take one the day of the fight, I think in that case, they, they would not allow you to fight. I think is the idea. I know in UFC, if the other fighter misses weight, they approach you. And they automatically will give you a certain percentage of their purse, but then they also ask you if you want to fight. It's up to your discretion. Does one also do that? That was exactly the process. So um, in, in our case, because she had missed weight by a somewhat egregious amount, um, you, you also... Uh, you're entitled to a, a minimum portion of that fighter's purse because of how much. Um, but given the amount, they actually put us in a position where they said, you know, you are welcome to negotiate for a higher percentage of that purse, given how much, you know, given that you're clearly going to be at some sort of disadvantage, you know, because she had missed weight by so much. Um, but uh, after talking to Savannah about it, Savannah was really not into that idea and she, she just wanted to take the fight. So, was it the kindness in you? You didn't want this poor woman be starving and not get much of a purse. You wanted to just keep it as it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of looked like she wasn't in the best situation. Like she flew out there. It looked like she was by herself. She didn't like she had someone corner her kind of in the last minute. So and basically I was just there to to finally make my debut for one. So it was just like. So it's kind of like fighter to fighter. You had some amount of empathy for her. Yeah. So that's the other question that if you didn't have a hookup, then is it more like you fly out there and then there's a hotel set up for yeah, you guys? Yeah, there's, there's a, a, a fairly small matted area within the hotel that, that one sets up, um, which was certainly better than nothing, right? Um, but it was a far cry from having an actual MMA yeah. academy to train at. And so that was the case for several of the fighters. That's That was really their only option. Um but you know, fortunately, we had we had prepared ahead of time, and 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 we're lucky enough to have a contact out there, and so uh, we definitely benefited from that. The testing of hydration, I think, is really interesting, and I hope other MMA organizations adopt it. But if nothing else, just for the women's division, or that should be the reason why they bring it in and make it uniform. Period. Because when a woman does miss weight, it's often because of their you know menstrual cycle or something, mm -hmm. right? 
And so they're trying to fight below their weight and they're not hydrated or whatever. I think if everybody had to do this, then they would have to fight closer to their weight and there will be emphasis that we don't want you to dehydrate the hell out of yourself to do this. I think that would be a good way to kind of uh, enforce people to fight closer at their weight and not try to kill themselves and also give a little bumper for things like that consideration. Like until a female fighter said that one time in the ring, I never even thought about how it is different for men and women. Yeah. I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. How are they supposed to make weight when often there's this half of the month that women start gaining like water weight and such? Yeah, I'm smiling right now because I'm currently writing a paper on that, actually. Oh. Yeah. And so it was a, a unique experience for me to get to uh, to observe the process at one for that reason. So I was bothering all of them the whole time, asking them many questions about, you know, uh, how they do things, why they do things that way and stuff. And then I told them as well that I was doing this research for that reason. But um, it'll it'll end up being like a chapter of my dissertation, the, the weight cutting process. Can you give away any spoilers or is it like a movie you can't talk about it? Or? Um, well, it's it's in the very early stages now. So it's just just sort of collecting data right now and stuff. But uh, and and that's a big part of what I spent uh, my interviews doing with these women, too, is asking them, you know, is cutting weight more difficult for women and why is it more difficult? And what are your experiences with that? Um you know, are you aware of uh, how little we know about the potential long-term consequences of this? Um, have you have you missed periods after a weight cut? Are you afraid this might affect your ability to become pregnant later in life? Um, we don't know a lot of answers to these questions. And so um, it, it's things like this, back to your earlier question about why study gender with sociology of sport, how could you not? Is yeah. kind of the lens I look at it through with interesting questions like this. I'm The first time I ever cornered a woman in a fight, um, the first thing she had to do when we got to the arena was do a pregnancy test. And I was like, pregnancy test, of course. Like wow. I just, but it was the furthest thing from my mind until I actually encountered that situation. And I was like, well, yeah, they, they, they better make them go through this test, right? Yeah. Invicta FC had that where they gave it to all their fighters. Yeah. Yeah. The, I don't know if they got a bulk discount. I read an interview before. I don't know if it was with Julie Kedzie or someone, but they had said, one of the questions was, uh, have you ever seen someone find out they're pregnant at an MMA event like that? And the answer was yes. So yeah, I don't know who, but. And the other interesting thing that I've been wondering about is, especially for Invicta, because it's all female, is if they try to set up fights with consideration of their menstrual cycle. Because, you know, like, what if you have to fight that day? It's going to mess up your way in and all that stuff. So do you put that into consideration? Oh, the yeah. fight's going to be here. This is where I am going to be so I could take it on this date. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I kind of, um, how we're talking about um, making weight for women, I'm always, uh, you know, talking to other fighters who are mostly men. And I'll be like, oh, I'm eight pounds off. And they're like, oh, that's easy. I, I, you'll sweat that in one training session. I'm like, I have never done that ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I, so now that I'm in San Diego training with all these women, because uh, before I was like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong? Why can't I? <laughs> what, why is this so difficult? Whereas everybody's making it seem so easy. But talking to these women, now they're like, oh, yeah, that, you know, I'm learning like my, my cycles, how it's affecting it. And I'm, I'm kind of seeing the patterns now. And the more we're doing that, I'm, I'm understanding my body and how everything fluctuates. So I'm kind of getting a better understanding of, um, you know, if my, my, my weight increases, I, I don't have to freak out at this certain time. Um, so stuff like that. I was once in a long seminar about nutrition and it was this really well-known nutritionist. And he was talking about how there's a different consideration when you're working with a client for weight loss, who's a woman, 
because often the way it's sold on TV and commercials and, uh, and in magazines is you see some guy and you see how they lost weight and they just sell it like his uniform mm-hmm. for everybody else. Yep. And the nutritionist was like, basically take, you know, a hundred guys and you just have them do any diet. doesn't matter which one, just pick a diet and work out. doesn't even matter if it's cardio or weight training. And most of them will lose weight. Mm-hmm. It's real simple for guys. Maybe right. it's mostly about motivation or discipline. Mm. Motivation and discipline is not enough for women, he said. <laughs> the considerations are much, much more difficult. It's so many other things than he said. And it's mostly because men only have to consider one hormone, testosterone. That's right. Whereas women have to consider all these other things. And also their body works one way, one half of the month, <laughs> you know, and then another way, the other half. And so it's like, we always simplify it thinking because it's simple for men, it must be just as simple for women. And so a lot of those answers don't work for women. Mm-hmm. George Lockhart talks about it. How when he was cutting weight for Chris Cyber, like, this is such a fucking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> because like you said about how it's different for men and women, how he has to calculate more variables. So it'll be similar, but not the same as if you were a vegetarian or vegan. Then he has to figure out, okay, where am I going to get your protein sources from? I usually get it from meat, but I can't anymore. Those are preferences. Yeah. So then it's like that, but way worse because that is like, I can't control it. It's like, do you really need to go vegan? Like, I'm just saying. Like, right, right. Do you really need this? Whereas for women, it's like, okay, I got to figure this out. How far out are we? Well, I don't know if that's possible. Yeah. And I had read a study recently that did uh, investigated weight cutting practices. I believe it was specific to MMA. It could have been combat sports. And it was something like 6% of people uh, utilized a nutritionist or uh, dietitian for their weight cuts. And it was, you know, it was like over 70% or something relied exclusively on teammates and coaches, almost all of whom are male, of course. Just bro science. That's R- right, about. right. And, <laughs> and, and, and worse yet, uh, a sexed bro science, you know, specifically for, for male bodies. And so it's not a surprise then when, when you know, women competitors ultimately don't really understand how to cut weight because the people advising them have no idea how, for their purpose anyway, how to cut weight. The interesting and funny part about that is no sport does as big of a weight cut as MMA. Like you talk to boxers and they're just cutting like eight pounds or something, mm-hmm. whereas MMA fighters are cutting way more. Even wrestlers don't cut that much because they're competing so often they're walking around, weight will be much lower anyway. Mm -hmm. So there's no other sport that cuts more volume of weight than MMA, yet they rely on the most amount of this kind of meathead science to do it. It gets very dangerous. And there's this emphasis about PEDs and they're like, somebody's going to die in there getting head kicked by a guy on steroids. And I'm like, no, I think chances are somebody will die more likely because of a weight cut. Yeah, And that's what really almost has killed several UFC fighters is the weight cut. Yeah, I th- and several people would agree with you. I think uh, I think the UFC has a, a good neuroscientist, uh, Anthony Alessi, I think is his name, uh, and he's said basically the same thing that it's it's probably the most dangerous element of mixed martial arts is the weight cutting. So, what made you start cross training in San Diego? Also, um, Justin is the one that introduced me to everyone to Manolo down there and uh, all the other ladies. And um, yeah, like I said, I was primarily tra- training out of fight science MMA and um, there's only a couple other other women out there and uh, whereas San Diego there's not just women but high level championship level fighters so so that's interesting because a lot of times people kind of going back to our overall topic right they're like it's better for women to just train with men because they're bigger and stronger 
but you're finding you find more benefit because there's nuances to training with women and sparring women. Mm -hmm. So why is it different? Because it's almost like, you know, if you watch old school Dragon Ball, you see Goku had like all these weights on and then he takes it off. Right. And then he's like super <laughs> strong and fast. Right. And Naruto copied this as well. So I think that's the kind of bro science that MMA fighters use. Men are like that. They're heavier and stronger. You're like going to be like Goku. Right. But you're finding that that works in anime, but <laughs> not in real life. There's something that you benefit from, from training with women when you're fighting women out there. Mm -hmm. For instance, just women's bodies are just, they're just built differently. So, uh, you're more flexible, like I'll get subs on men that I will never get on women. Just having someone just my size, kind of getting that feel. Um, the scrambles on the ground are very different. Exactly. More noodly. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's totally different. So, yeah. Like arm bars, I find is such lower percentage just from observational analogies I make in my own head when I'm watching UFCs. Men, boom, arm bar is yep, done. Exactly. And women escape out of arm bars mm -hmm. so much more often. Yep. You really have to just choke them. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, different flexibility. Mm -hmm. Is it also kind of a different rhythm, different pace, and different weight distribution, I guess? I think mainly it's the, the biggest biggest difference I see is in the in the grappling, just the just how their bodies just just are more malleable or more flexible in certain ways, whereas men are a little more stiff and I get away with a lot more things grappling with men than I than I can't with like women. You really have to make sure that shit is like tight, like your submission, your technique, everything, every single little space is locked down before you can try to finish it. Josh Barnett talks about it. That's how he got so quick and fast early on because all his training partners were much smaller than him. Mm. So stuff that he had to tighten up because he didn't want to hurt them. So he just had to say, mm -hmm. well, I can't just power through certain things. And it was like, well, you're not really learning. Yeah. So then he just had to say, like, oh, okay, well, what's the proper technique for certain mm -hmm. things? Definitely. You were kind of speaking to like almost like, like you, could, you might call it like the handicap theory of like you give yourself this handicap in training, then of course that'll translate to a better uh, performance later on, right? Uh, so you see like baseball players, for instance, if I, if I warm up by swinging two bats, right? Then when I have one, I'll be so fast and I'll be so powerful. Um, and there, there are merits to that theory, but there are limitations too. So when I first started training, I was part of an academy where I was by far the smallest person on the mat. And so I was training almost exclusively with heavyweights. And so it's like, well, if this is what I get used to, how easy will it feel when I go against someone who's 140 pounds? Then I go out there with the people who are 140 pounds. I'm like, oh my God, these people are so fast. And <laughs> these things that I could get away with, not unlike what Savannah was saying, they just are, they're different on a smaller body, a faster body. Um, and so of course there are benefits to training with people much stronger than you and you get used to not having that advantage over someone. Therefore, if you do enjoy that advantage, great. Um, but there are a lot of other considerations that people often don't think about uh, specific to talking about training with men and women, um, like, like Savannah noted, the flexibility. Now you might experience, okay, if I train with men, maybe by and large, men tend to be stronger, but they tend to be stronger in different ways. So even, even I, uh, like one of the things that gets criticized about women's mixed martial arts a lot of times is how often uh, women go for headlocks, which tactically is often a really poor choice. Um, and it's, and it seems striking when you, when you watch this happen over and over and you've seen it pan out poorly over and over and you're like, why do they continue to do this? Um, I don't know that I have the answer, but one thing that I thought was interesting is I had the chance to watch uh, Bellator champion, Ali Malay McFarlane teach a women's 
jujitsu class one time and she was teaching, uh, you know, some sort of hip toss or something. And she was explaining that as women, uh, they generally keep more weight in their hips. And therefore that explains why you see so many of these tactics. And I, I thought that was really interesting. It's not something I had considered before. I don't, I don't know that that's the one answer, but it was at least a consideration that I hadn't, you know, really thought of. And, and I think there are a lot of things like that, that, that don't even come to mind now that are, that are probably out there. This is my pet theory. I think it's because of the way they train, uh, meaning when they're training with other women, right? Women tend to have longer hair and they tie it up. Mm-hmm. And so if I headlock you, Justin, and you have short hair, you can just pull your head right out. Mm. Whereas women, they'll tie it up in a bun and often hold it in place with headgear. So if I headlock you, you're not going to pull your head out. Yeah. So I wonder if that's a habit that picked up in training because they're wearing something like that. It's just like the way you guard your face and striking if you've only done boxing, right? And you kind of just hold your hands in front of you. But with smaller gloves, things change. But that's a habit. Like in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I've seen this in tournaments where it's a habit that's not a good habit, but you have, which is when somebody takes uh, side control on you, right? Where you're pinning them sideways, if you don't know what that is, because you're such a good partner when you're drilling moves or your instructor is teaching you a move, as soon as uh, somebody starts to put their hand underneath your head, you automatically lift your head for them uh-huh. so that they could kind of get their cross face on you or hold underneath your head, right? And then because that's so drilled unconsciously like Pavlovian, I see it all the time. And you don't notice that unless you know to look for it. But just watch. Somebody gets side control and then they just want to go reach underneath your head and they'll just lift it for you. That's funny. Yeah. The the one thing missing from that, though, is is you know, uh, certainly like like my role as a coach, if if I see these things become habits it's absolutely my job to correct them and say, hey, this this technique has has all but proven to be ineffective. I don't care that it worked last round. We're not doing it, yeah. you know? Um, so it still is puzzling to me when I see tactics like that employed at the highest levels routinely and fail routinely. Um, for the lens I'm looking at it through, I see this as maybe you know, oftentimes, uh, and this speaks to why, again, Savannah is spending so much time in San Diego. Oftentimes, these women, even even really talented ones, are maybe one of two or three women in their academy. And if they happen to be better than those other two women, then they can do no wrong to an extent, you know? And so they'll get away with things that work against their one or two training partners that are just not going to work at a higher level. And that's why I think it's so crucial to have a coach that that uh, can kind of see that and say, I, I get that that worked last round, but we, ca- we simply can't rely on that technique. Trust me, it's not going to work. First 10 years of men's MMA also had a lot of headlock throws also. Sure. So it took them a long time to get rid of that as well. And I think it is because of the skill disparity. To add to Sam's pet theory about the bun, another thing <laughs> I read was that because of women's breasts and the fact that they're usually wearing tank tops or some sort of compression top on, what happens is when you headlock it, it gives another area of mm. friction. So that way it's easier for you to throw them. Whereas men will just slide out or like, nope, getting out of there. Sure. That's a theory. I don't know how true it is. And it doesn't help that Ronda made it popular. So they're like, well, she did it. Then why can't Now, I? if you're a judo Olympian and you have a case of Gatami that people can't get out of and you can finish from there, hey, more power to you. Use that technique. But again, just from a coaching standpoint, rash guard or not to say, hey, I've watched the last 30 Invictas and this technique all but never works. Maybe let's not do it. You're saying that's the onus is on the coach to I think solve so. That. You know, it's you know, the the athlete is gonna do 
the athlete has enough to worry about. You know, they have to get in shape. They have to, you know, they have to be on their diet. They have to be on their strength and conditioning. They have to show up to these classes. They have to prepare themselves mentally for sparring. They have an incredible task as a professional athlete. The least the coach can do is say, hey, maybe let's not go with this headlock. So then when a training camp starts, what is your training schedule like? Do you even have time to do strength and conditioning? Because that's always been also a curious thing for me. They're burning themselves out so much in the skill training and the martial arts training. How do they have energy to do strength and conditioning? Uh, and secondly, like sometimes isn't rest more important? I don't know. So how do you balance all of that? What is your training schedule like when camp starts? Um, so I'm in uh, San Diego about three days a week starting Wednesday. And on, on Wednesday, I'm doing... I think about four different classes. So two in the morning, two in the evening at least. Um, and then same thing for Thursday. And then Friday. What are the classes? Uh, so um, MMA class and jujitsu mm. and wrestling, shoot boxing. So okay. kind of um, bouncing between those um, those four. And then Friday is uh, just a sparring day. So that's, that's an hour of just straight, just all around. So that's all for that day. And then Saturday, I meet with Justin at um, at a at our judo academy. We 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 actually do uh, jujitsu class first together, and then and then we do a couple hours of uh, just private training. And then Sunday, we do we just do private training. And then uh, Monday and Tuesday are more my recovery day, so I'll try to incorporate some light light drilling or or maybe some um, some cardio aspect. And um, so that's pretty much what it looks like. Okay. And then are you doing any strength and conditioning on top of all this? Uh, I kind of go by how my body feels. Um, I like to incorporate because I do feel a difference. Um, and it does help with like getting the weight off. So whenever I can, I, I try to fit in a strength and conditioning class um, maybe once or twice a week. So. so Justin, then in your consideration, when you're talking to her about her schedule, do you emphasize then just skills training much, much more above the conditioning and strengthening aspect of it. Cause there's some coaches who are now going away from the UFC, like fight countdown model of you just see them doing a shitload of uh, conditioning where, you know, some people are like, no, we don't want you to do any strength and conditioning at all. Just martial skills training. Yeah. We certainly place a, a greater emphasis on being able to move efficiently. And so if, if our, if our techniques and tactics are advanced to the point where we just don't have to work as hard as our opponent, whether that means keeping our opponents in an uh, anaerobic state, whether that means keeping ourselves in an aerobic state, what it's going to mean a variety of things. Um, that's going to ultimately um, pan out better for us than I think focusing on just, you know, Savannah is, of course, a well-conditioned professional athlete. Like she's, uh, she might downplay how hard she works. She works incredibly hard. So even our our private lessons that might sound like they're just technical training, uh, usually that's an that includes an hour or two of her with um, with fresh opponents who are who are you know drilling with her and stuff. Whether that's you know rounds up against the fence, whether that's getting up off the floor. Mm -hmm. Savannah works incredibly incredibly hard. Um, but our goal is, you know, George St. Pierre said something very interesting years ago where he basically said, everyone asked me about my conditioning. He goes, I have good conditioning like everyone else has good conditioning. He goes, but my opponents are always forced to fight my fight at my pace. And because of that, yeah, I look better conditioned than them because I'm working more efficiently than them. Um, and I, I 
took that very seriously. And this was years ago. And it really did have a big impact on not only the way I trained, but the way I coached. And uh, I certainly think you see that in Savannah. Um, You'll continue to see that. So switching gears a little bit, Savannah, I wanted to ask you about your art. How did you get into art? Did you grow up like you were nodding your head when I was making the Goku reference? Like, did you grow up watching anime or stuff like that? Um, just like the Seinfeld reference went way over her head. When you guys started talking about that, it's just. Yeah. See, you made the wrong reference. I was like, Savannah seems like a Goku Naruto kind of girl. Yeah. I, I haven't gotten to Naruto yet because I feel like I just don't. That would be 10 years of your life. You're not going to. Exactly. I don't, I don't know if I have time <laughs> right now. I, I know it. Um, but um, I did watch Dragon Ball Z. But I was more of a SpongeBob. Anyway, I watched all kinds of cartoons. I don't also, wanna... you're more into the comedic ones. Yes, I love com. Yeah, comedic. You know, like Adventure Time is amazing stuff like. That. But I was always just draw. I don't know. Ever since I was a kid, I was just just always drawing. My uncle. I have an uncle or a couple uncles that were were always doodling and stuff, and I just always copied stuff, and I've just just always done it. So. Did you grow up like wanting to do comic books, or did you draw your own comics, or was it more illustrations, or? Um. It was more illustrations. Uh, I, I, I never, like I said, like my, my mom, I mean, she always bought me art supplies, but she never talked to me about like, you know, oh, you can have a career in this since you're so good at drawing. So I never knew like, oh, I can do animation. And like uh, a couple of years ago, a friend of ours, he, he's, he worked on, uh, he works at Cartoon Network. And so he showed me the studio. I was like, oh my God, I, I could have been working toward this all my yeah, life. Yeah. I, I well, didn't so know. You had no idea that that was no, a I possible end goal. I just thought cartoons just magically happened <laughs> i didn't know that there there's a whole team of artists that you know so so i didn't really put make it a main focus growing up so right now then are you dedicating your career to just mma or are you also open to art as a possible future right now um mma is my 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 priority um but i always want to keep my you know, i keep want to keep getting better at my my drawings so you know i'm thinking like if i once i want to retire i can work from home as a you know illustrator or graphic artist or something so that's just something i kind of want to be keep on the back burner i mean it's fun for me and it's something i've always done so do you have a specific goal in mma like to be champion of one or eventually go to ufc um I kind of want to go. I just want to go with it. It goes as far as I can with it. And if I become champion of one, I think that's, I don't see how that's not a possibility. So we've heard about how much women's MMA, like the pay for the UFC has gotten a lot better. And I think it's growing faster than any other women's sport. For men's MMA, it does seem like at the very top, right? Having a career and, you know, a comfortable life off of your fight salary does now seem tenable. But if I, I don't know, like the reference point I have is like women's boxing, where a lot of them still had to work and do other things. It, it wasn't something that was completely tenable to just do that, uh, even if you're at the highest level. I wonder if uh, women's MMA still has a long way to go to make up for the. Certainly, the there's some people at the very top, uh, specifically when talking about women who are, who are doing quite well financially. Um, I, I definitely know that to be the case. How many of them, I'm not sure. And then, you know, how big of a gap between them and, and the rest, I, I'm really not sure. But that's the other interesting thing about MMA compared to other sports. There's no like transparency in salaries, right? Like NBA, NFL, every other sport. And that kind of transparency allows people to negotiate for, for better pay and stuff. Is that something that you guys have thought about? Would you guys want MMA to become as transparent as other sports? Or do you like 
don't want it to be like that because then you don't want strangers showing up like some cousin who's like, hey, man, can you let me borrow some money? I wouldn't mind. I don't care. I don't, it's fine. Transparency is okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, I'm relaxed, man. I, I, I'll fight because I like it. And if it's enjoyable, I'll keep doing it. If I don't enjoy it, I'm not going to do it. That sounds good. Transparency sounds good to me. I have no problems with that. If it starts bothering me, then, you know, <laughs> I might disagree. <laughs> Do you have ideas about combat sports in general, then where you think the sport should go, like uh, certain things that you would want to see in the sport? Um, I'm definitely very pro the idea of something of a fighters union. That I think is something that would be very, very good for all the athletes involved. Uh, certainly like with the UFC as an example, of course, um, you know, with this this uh, employee independent contractor distinction that gets talked about ad nauseum, and then um, and it, basically that you know they have all the responsibilities of an employee, but none of the benefits necessarily. Um, and so, and they they just really have no ability to bargain for themselves, right? So um, even things with like the recent TV deal or with the uniforms, you know, it's not that necessarily every one of these things is bad or, um, you know, is done, you know, uh, against the fighter's best interest. We just simply don't know they haven't they don't have the ability to speak about their own best interests and that i think is a huge problem and so our experiences in one have been phenomenal they they treated us uh very very well during our time mm -hmm. there um and certainly hopefully that continues now savannah also does have uh the luxury of having a very good manager too who does do a, a great job taking care of her so um but but not everybody's so fortunate right so if I can interject also, I've always wondered about this, but when you have people flying in, right? A fighter and their managers, does the organization like one, do they feed you <laughs> or do you have to just pay for food and all that out of your own pocket? Yeah, no, one actually took care of us very nicely. So we each had a per diem. Uh, we each had our own, you know, hotel room it was a, a very, very nice hotel. And then, you know, just given, you know, the exchange rate, uh, staying in Kuala Lumpur for a week was was quite feasible for us too. So yeah, they they certainly ensured that we had a very, very comfortable stay. We can't say enough good things about that. Yeah, you mentioned that the employee independent contractor is not good. I go stuff further. It's pretty bad. It's like, being a vampire and a human, but like a reverse blade, like you're still as strong as a human, you age him, but you also get killed by sunlight. Pretty and much, that's that's that's, that's, that's not a bad comparison, actually. It's like yeah. reverse blade. It's like no, you no sunlight, no, don't don't go out. You get and if killed. you and if you own the company, why wouldn't you want that? Of course, like it makes great business sense, uh, especially when when the people who work for you have no ability to bargain on their own behalf. So it's like, you know. Yeah, if you talk to any lawyer and they look through a contract from a business perspective and they see independent contractors, Zufa, blah, 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 like this is a terrible contract. So you don't have your rights. So if they put you in a video game, that's it. Your name, they also own that. You can't get your own. Oh, you can't get your sponsors shown. So what's the benefit of all this? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a great question. Savannah, when you're fighting, are you able to have conscious thoughts out there like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to grab here. Or is it like <laughs> just kind of more instinctual? Whatever you drilled kind of happens on autopilot, but it's really hard to have conscious thoughts while you're out there. Is it like an out of body experience, I guess? A bit of both. My first two was definitely like more of an auto, like I didn't remember anything that happened mm. afterwards. And uh, but this one I was able to, because we've done everything on repeat, 
millions of reps of the things that we were working on. Uh, and I was, and I, I went in there knowing what I wanted to do, what I wanted to try. And, um, yeah, I was able like, oh, that's, that's the main difference with this bike compared to my other two was I was thinking, uh, and I was focused on the task. I wasn't like, there wasn't all this adrenaline rushing. So before it was more like tunnel vision. Yeah. Just win. Ah, or it's more like emotional right your emotional state kind of took over and you won but this one your like fighter's mind was able Mm -hmm. to kick in so this is where then like a coach like justin really helped you out is to kind of cultivate that in you Mm -hmm. absolutely do you have a nickname uh we had one we started out with uh, savage buddha so that's kind of like the one that's that people know me by right now but um with one they you know we're in we're in southeast asia so they're like mm, the, the buddha thing might might be a little weird mm. so we're just going white with uh sweet savage so okay it's not as cool but uh <laughs> so my follow-up question is this when you fought for gladiator challenger one mm-hmm. do they have like when you're filling your name out like a thing where they want you to have a nickname like does every mma fighter have to have a nickname because it seems like it's mandatory now why can't you just use your name is it like no we don't want you to just go by your name. What, what, give me something. Give me, give me a stage name here. Give me a nickname. Like pro wrestling? Yeah, yeah. Like, what's your gimmick? Or was it more like if you had a nickname, they were like, I think it was it. more like that. I don't think it was more like, I don't think it was like you, you had to have it or anything. But uh, yeah, I remember when I tried out for, for Tough yeah. uh, a couple summers ago or something, or last summer, um, they they liked Savage Buddha. Like, they, that's all they called me. They didn't even know my real name. They so. wanted a nickname. Yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah. seems like every UFC fighter has yeah. a nickname, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So with your nickname then, the Savage Buddha, did that happen organically? Or were you like, oh, now I'm training MMA. I got to come up with a nickname. Uh, Yeah, it was, I didn't come up with it. So It just came. Yeah, yeah. That is also weird cultural phenomena within MMA that every fighter, one of the first things they do is try to figure out, you know, a nickname. Because even like I think in video games or like MMA cartoons, like that's one of the first things on the first day of MMA training. What's going to be my nickname? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I I think that's like a combat sports tradition anyway, though, right? Particularly with, you know, boxing and, you know, if you consider pro wrestling combat sport. Um, But yeah, that's I was uh, years ago. I was like a really big uh, when I was younger, uh, like I was like one of the the big sure dog nerds you know oh. so i'd spend a lot of time on the forums and stuff oh, no, you were a troll i was never a troll <laughs> but I, I was the guy who would post like once a year and think it was some really great post you were a lurker i was more of a lurker <laughs> but i remember one of the things someone discussed is they were saying that only the best fighters could pretty much do without a nickname and so nick diaz was the one that people would always reference as like he doesn't need a nickname yeah, so, yeah. And they called him diablo for a while and then they he was did, like right. they did who the that fuck calls me diablo yeah. yeah he was yeah. surprised like the fuck yeah <laughs> where'd this come from uh-huh i like savage but it reminds me of a uh, daniel gita for a while they called him savage samurai oh okay yeah, yeah. it was like k1 kickboxer and uh-huh. then just disappeared after a while hmm. but i could see how that could play differently depending on where you are in the world mm-hmm. because like buddha is more kind of like a. I guess here it's like the samurai. It almost is like a Asian caricature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the East, they're like, I don't know, savage Jesus. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. No, that's it's like, oh, that, it's like that really does put it in perspective. <laughs> yeah. 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 That should be really cool, savage yeah. Jesus. <laughs> no, when I said it, it kind of has a, a certain you know sound to it. Right. Maybe you should do savage Buddha 
in the U.S., <laughs> but when you fight overseas, go by Savage Jesus. <laughs> I am fully in support of this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. So in closing, then, how can people find you? What are some of the accounts that you have? Uh, so I'm, I post a lot on Instagram. You can find me at nari 36 Oh, I don't remember what it is. I think it's not. Uh, I think it's Nari M N A H R Y E M. And then on Facebook, it's my full name, Savannah Ree M. And then I'm on Twitter, uh, Savannah M One. So. And then Justin, do you want to be found online or just uh, want sure, people to yes. stay the hell away from you? So I, yeah, I have. Well, you're a YouTuber anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't have a Twitter, unfortunately, but I do have Instagram, Facebook, and and my YouTube page is one that I post a lot of free techniques on and stuff. So it's just my first and last name, Justin Hamilton, but my first name is spelled J U S T E N. So yeah, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube. It's more phonetic, actually. Ooh, I like right? the vowel yeah. switch. <laughs> well, I could thank my parents for that. So for you guys, I'll post all that in the show notes. But otherwise, thank you guys for coming today. Thank you very much for thank having you. us. <laughs>